If you have your Bibles with you, you can open them up to Matthew chapter 12. Really quick, I can't remember if I did this already. So if I haven't introduced myself, my name is Andrew. I have the pleasure of being one of several people that give some leadership to this, uh, this community. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we have them right over there for free. Take it home, mark it up. It's yours, our gift to you. And of course, you can always download one from the App Store on your phone. Uh, we are going to continue on in the book of Matthew today. Uh, for those of you who haven't been with us over the last a little bit. We have been walking through this book for, I don't know, a year and a half, and we are almost at the end of chapter 12. So uh, yeah, we're really, really slow readers. Um, but just to remind us of what's happened so far in chapter 12, chapter 12 focuses on this uh, series of confrontations between Jesus and this group of, of Jewish religious leaders called the Pharisees. And so it starts off at the beginning of chapter 12, and they have this series of arguments over how to properly observe the Sabbath, uh, Sabbath being kind of this religious day of rest, this weekly day of rest in the Jewish faith. And uh, it culminates in this, uh, this moment where uh, Jesus actually uh, finds someone, and, and this person is inhabited or oppressed by an evil spirit, and Jesus casts that spirit out. And the Pharisees are looking at this, and they say, oh man, it's, it's by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that you cast out demons. And, and Jesus, not only he just exposes the illogicalness of that statement, he's just like, yeah, it doesn't really work for someone to attack their own team. Like, that's just bad, you know, bad strategy. But he, he kind of digs deeper and he exposes that this is actually coming from a pretty wrecked place in their hearts. And, and that's not intuitive to the people that Jesus is meeting with because the Pharisees were like the clean and shiny people of that day. And, and we're not talking about like some abstract people who were kind of off in their like a theoretical halls. Like these were like everyday, ordinary, average church people who really seemed to get it. You know, people would look at them and say, oh man, these are the guys who really, really care about their faith. And yet, as they confront Jesus, he exposes that the root of who they are is something rotten. Last week, if you were here, you may remember that Jesus actually uh, makes this explicit and he invites people to look at the fruit of his life because he's been accused of something. He says, okay, well, well let's just look at this logically. You know, you know what kind of a tree, uh, what kind of health a tree is, is by the, by the fruit it bears. If you have healthy fruit, you have a healthy tree. And he says, look back at all the things that you've seen me do. I've been restoring people, healing them, bringing people who are marginalized back into community. And at the same time, he's exposing what has just been shown by the Pharisees falsely accusing him. He's saying, look at the fruit of their lives. But there's an invitation in there for us to actually start to peel back the layers of our self-proclaimed goodness and actually take a look at the fruit of our lives. And Jesus invites us into this process so that we will see that he is indeed the answer. So we're going to continue today. Jesus is going to finish off this conversation with the Pharisees. And then we're going to take a little break over the next six weeks and, and walk through some, some uh, really good questions that people have about faith. Uh, so if you are new with us, uh, if you have questions, invite you to come back for that. Uh, if you are someone who calls West Village your home, uh, just invite you to invite others to be part of that because it's going to be uh, really great. But uh, let's dive right in. So starting in verse 38 says this, Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, 
We want to see a sign from you. And he answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Then the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. And the queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to the Solomon's wisdom, and now something greater than Solomon is here. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through airy places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. And when it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean, and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. All right, that's a lot, and we are going to make it through, I promise. Hopefully in good time. So let's, let's jump right into verse 38. These Pharisees are now joined by what is called the teachers of the law. These are like religious lawyers, experts in the religious law code. And okay, so we know that there's been this confrontation going on. And now this uh, group of religious leaders, they've invited their buddies who are like really, really good, uh, like experts of the law. And they ask Jesus this basic question. And they say, hey, Jesus, like if you're claiming to be this person sent from God, you should prove it. And there's actually good grounds, which the, you know, the religious leaders would know. In the Old Testament, God said, if someone claims to be a prophet, uh, you got to test that. Why, why? Well, I mean, all of us know that religion has been used for some of the worst and most horrific manipulation in the course of our history. I mean, people use it for their own means all the time. And God's fully aware that the human condition is twisted, and this can easily be our tendency. And so he wanted to make sure that this never happened with his people. And so he said, if anyone's claiming to be from me, they got to prove it. they got to show it. That's a good thing. And he, he's so clear about it. He's like, man, if someone says they're from me and they're actually just deceiving you, like that's... That's capital punishment where you're like, that's not okay. And so uh, it's, it's not necessarily odd for people to expect a sign, but, but we actually know just from the, the parts that we've already read that this is a pretty disingenuous question. I mean, first of all, if you followed the book of Matthew at all, you know that there has been multitudes of signs. I mean, Jesus has been healing people. As we said earlier, he's been uh, doing all the stuff that the prophets proclaimed would happen when God showed up. The blind are being, are being given sight. The deaf can hear. The lame can walk. People who are marginalized, pushed to the edges of society, are being brought in. The good news is being proclaimed to the poor. There has been sign after sign after sign after sign. There's no need for more signs. 
For those of you who were here a few weeks ago when uh, Adam was sharing with us, you may remember that uh, in between his passage and the one that Andrew was doing, uh, at the end of the one that Andrew was doing, uh, there's this moment where Jesus is actually withdrawing, and it says, because the Pharisees were planning to kill him. Their hearts had become so twisted, so angry with who Jesus was, that they had been fixated on wanting to kill him. And so they're looking for an excuse here. They're actually confronting Jesus in the hopes that he won't produce a sign so that they can start going around and saying, oh man, he's guilty. We got to kill this guy. There's a, a really rich irony to this question. If you remember from Matthew chapter 4, Jesus gets carried into the wilderness and he's fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. Which, I mean, if, if we're really being honest, that in itself is like proof of the divine because I can't even like last 36 hours of fasting. So, I mean, that 40 days and 40 nights, I don't know. That's crazy. But in this moment, Jesus is confronted by the tempter, by Satan, by the accuser. And in, in one of these temptations, he takes Jesus to the top of the temple and says, hey, prove yourself. Show them a sign. If you're the son of God, throw yourself down. And the irony here of this question is that the very words and actions of Satan's are now being perpetrated by the very people who claim to be the religious leaders themselves. They're starting to look very much like Satan. But I think there's something even deeper going on here. Because they didn't just start here. They got to this point. What brought them here? Well, I think the first thing that we can say is there's obviously a desire for self-justification. They feel this anger against Jesus. They feel this hatred towards him. And they know that murder is wrong. That's not something we're supposed to do. Capital punishment, though, I think we can probably slide that one through. And so they, they're looking for a way to justify their hearts. But if we travel even deeper than that, we, we need to ask, how did their hearts even get to that place? And I think if we're taking time to, to look at what's been going on here, and there's, there's some expectations of Jesus that just haven't been met. You see, these religious leaders, and I think we've said this a few times, like they grew up listening to how Israel had been faithless to God and how God had sent them into exile. And they thought, man, we're going to work so hard that that's never going to happen again. We're going to follow all the rules. We're going to be so faithful to God's covenant. We're going to create rules around the rules. And we're expecting that God's going to show up because we've been really good. And he's going to clean house. All those people who aren't as good of rule followers as we are, man, he's just going to like smite them. And the Romans who are basically treating us like slaves in our own homeland, like he's going to come like a warrior and push that monster into the sea. They had these big expectations for how God was supposed to act. And then Jesus shows up. He's born in a manger. All those dirty, rotten people who aren't following the law, like, what's Jesus doing? He's like eating with them. He's going to their house. They're his followers. Here's these guys, and they're working their butts off. 
And Jesus says, man, I'm God in human form. Here to restore and bring people back into relationship with God. And they're saying, whoa, that's not how we expected it to happen. And it breeds bitterness and anger and eventually manifests in hatred. I think a lot of us would look at that and say, oh, man, that's, that, they're off the rocker. That's crazy talk. What, I mean, you see all the good things Jesus is doing. How, how could you not respond to that? But if we're really taking an honest look at ourselves, how many of us have expectations of Jesus that aren't necessarily being met? And when they aren't met, we put conditions around our obedience or our love for him. I remember a few of these moments where I've had friends who uh, they're, they're getting older and they desperately want to have a partner. I, I want to be married someday. I want to be a mom or I want to be a dad. And it's just not happening. And they're looking at their lives and saying, man, God, like we did all the right things. Like, we've been faithful in our church community. We've served. We've given. You were supposed to hold up your end of the bargain. Where is that person for me? We have these moments of tragedy in our lives. A a few people this week in our church family lost loved ones. I want to just send our condolences out to, to Boyd and the Flag family and uh, to Marge and Phil Tautel, uh, both lost loved ones this week. And that's a tragic moment. And all of us have or will have these moments where we see someone who's suffering and we don't understand why. And you can just imagine with me, maybe this has been you. And you're you're sitting and you're praying for this person who's suffering, they're too young, or it's not their time. And you call your friends to pray for them, and you call your church to pray for them, and you call other churches to pray for them. And yet they pass. For some of us, It's this dream that we've had. We just feel compelled to be a kind of person. Maybe it's in the arts. You're you're like, man, I want to be a successful artist. I want to do a lifetime of doing this in music or some kind of uh, great career. And you work really, really, really hard. You tell God, man, God, if if I get there, like it's all going to be for you. It just doesn't pan out. Or maybe it's in our relationship, in our marriage. Some of us worked really, really hard to kind of prepare ourselves for marriage. Like we've, we've been sexually pure. We haven't slept with anyone else. We're like, hey, we're saving ourselves for our future husband and wife. I'm going to premarital counseling, doing all the right things. You get into a relationship. And it sucks. It's really, really hard. Like, man, Jesus, I did all the right things. I did all the things that you told me to do. 
You were supposed to make the rest happen. And when we get to these moments where Jesus is not behaving the way he's supposed to, we have a choice of how we're going to respond to that. And if we choose to respond the way of the Pharisees, it's going to lead to frustration, disillusionment, and bitterness. It's going to take root in our hearts and transform us into an enemy of God. Listen to how Jesus diagnoses the Pharisees' condition. He says, you, uh, he says, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. I mean, first of all, this is like a cold burn from Jesus. I mean, calling them a wicked and adulterous generation. Again, we got to remember, they have been studying their, their ancestors and saying they did all the wrong things. They were a wicked and adulterous generation. And in this moment, Jesus is saying, you are exactly like them. Your hearts want to kill me? What about this adulterous piece? I mean, he's, he's saying they're, they're like sexually unfaithful to a partner. I mean, probably most of the Pharisees if not all of the Pharisees, that would not be the case in their marriage. So what's Jesus talking about? Well, if we go back, we see in the Old Testament scriptures, the, the Hebrew Bible, that it was a common theme, the way that God would say uh, Israel was falling away, he described it as, as marital unfaithfulness. So you, you guys are like cheating on me all the time. Every new fad, every new idol comes along, a new nation comes along, and they have a new cool, new cool God. You guys are chasing after that God. It's like, you know, you're my, my spouse and you keep cheating on me. In fact, there's an entire book of the Bible called Hosea where God calls his prophet to, to go and marry this woman who's a prostitute. And he brings her into his house, loves her. They have a kid together. And she's back out on the street. And Isaiah goes back to her and says, hey, I love you. Like, I've, I've, I've worked hard to provide a great life for you. Come back. And she comes back, and things are good for a while. They have another kid, and she's back out on the street. And God says, this is a picture of what you as a people are like, Israel. Like, I've pursued you. I've laid my life down for you. I've created a space for you to flourish and let you keep chasing after someone or something else. And Jesus says this is exactly what's going on in the hearts of the Pharisees. And, and, and let's be clear, they're, they're probably not going around like praying to little wooden statues or weird masks. Some of us, the idea of idolatry is a little bit foreign, or the conception we have of it is a little archaic. Pastor and author Tim Keller, though, is very helpful. He describes idolatry this way. He says, an idol is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give, anything that is so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. 
as I read that, did anything come to your mind? Is there anything in your life, if you lost it, it would make you feel like your life isn't worth living? A lot of us really, really love our families. That's a good thing. A really good thing. But how many of us, when we're making decisions, the first decision that we make is about our family and their needs and their wants and their desires. And that is the controlling thing about, the controlling function of our emotions. Is it possible that you might be cheating on Jesus with your kids or with your spouse? For some of us, it's our career, our job. It's the thing that fulfills us, that drives us, that makes us happy or sad based on what's going on in work. We invest our time and our energy into it. Are you having an affair on Jesus with your career? Maybe for some of us, it's entertainment or social media. I mean, your time is invested on your Instagram feed or Snapchatting with your friends or updating your Facebook status or just simply scrolling and losing yourself in YouTube. And it controls you and you got to have it. And when someone gets in the way of it, you get cranky. You're like, man, that's, I was watching that YouTube video. Don't interrupt me. I'm not doing chores. I've had that conversation with my wife, so speaking from experience. But is it possible that you got a little something-something on the side with your social media? What about your friends? I remember when I was in high school, friends were pretty significant people in my life. I mean, they were the ones that I talked to and they got me, you know, when, when you're like a teenager and you're like, man, my parents don't really get what, what's going on. Here's my friends. They're going through the same stuff as me. And we spend so much time and energy and the, the way our friends go affects the way that we feel. And if, if they don't like us for a period of time, it's devastating. And how God feels about us is like way down on the list. Giving ourselves to spend time with him, and that's not really a top priority. If you are investing your time, your emotional energy, your finances in any significant form into something, it's possible that thing could be an idol for you. And Jesus says, man, there's only one sign that's going to ever be able to break through that. It's a sign of Jonah. See, Jonah was this prophet. He's this Old Testament figure who, who God had called to go to this city of Nineveh. And Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. I mean, the Assyrians were like 
I mean, they were like the Saddam Hussein of the ancient world. I mean, they were horrific. They used to go uh, to a, a people group and say, you know, surrender to us. And if the people didn't surrender, they would uh, kill all the men, take them out, stick them on stakes, and then they would go to all the fields and put salt on them so nothing could grow on them again. This is the kind of brutality that signified the Assyrian people. And, and God says, I want you to go to their capital city and preach that judgment is coming upon them. And Jonah's like, no, I don't want to do that. So he gets into this boat and he tries to sail away. But there's this profound moment where God kind of confronts him. He's like, you can't hide from me, I'm God. And this storm comes up. And it looks like the entire boat, sailors, other passengers, is going to capsize. And Jonah says, okay, you guys have to throw me into the ocean. If you throw me in, then you will all be saved. And it's a profound and beautiful picture of what is accomplished through Jesus. And this is what Jesus is alluding to. You're saying, there's going to be this moment where I go to the cross and I'm nailed there, beaten, torn, and I die. For three days and three nights, I'm going to be in the earth. And then I'm going to be raised again for the salvation of the people around me. Jonah went and he was swallowed by a fish, which is in and of itself, I know, a crazy story. We can talk about that another time. Three days and three nights. But through that, the sailors on the boat were saved. And Jesus says, this, this is the profound sign that's going to help you understand when moments are dark, that there is nothing, nothing that will love you or satisfy you or fulfill you like me. Pastor and, uh, and author um, Tim Mackey, uh, he actually, if any of you are familiar with it, he's uh, one of the founders of the Bible Project's phenomenal YouTube channel. I was listening to his take on this passage, and he says this, and I think it's, it's helpful for us. He says, a wicked and adulterous generation doesn't get any sign except the sign that you hate me, that you're going to kill me, and I'm going to let you kill me because I love you and I'm committed to you despite your adultery and faithfulness. Let that sit with you for a second. Jesus continues on, and he's now confronting the Pharisees, and not just them, the people around them, because there's a group of people that is sitting here observing this. And he says, The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now something greater than Jonah, queen of the south, will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now something greater than Solomon is here. So what's Jesus' point? He's saying, man, you guys have experienced the extravagant love of a God who decided that he cared so much about you that he was going to become one of you. And he's standing here right in front of you in the flesh. And you're not responding to him. And he uses these two stories and he says, man, there's these people, the Ninevites, that wicked, horrible uh, Assyrian empire. And what did they get? They got Jonah. What does Jonah do? He, he goes around for three days and he has like three words that he says. 
like turn or burn. I mean, it's like the harshest, most unloving, most unkind message in the world. And yet through that cold, tough exterior, they actually hear the plea of a loving God who says, I want more for you. And they throw themselves at the mercy of God. And she says, man, when it comes time to stand before God, these guys who had literally almost nothing and yet chose to respond, they're going to stand here and say, how could you have missed this? Second story, Queen of the South. You may be familiar with this story if you're familiar with the book of 2 Kings. Uh, King Solomon is this quintessential uh, king of Israel, and he builds this empire. He has this profound moment early in his career where God comes to him and says, I will give you anything you want. And, And Solomon says, man, God, I just want to have wisdom. Wisdom. I want to know how to rule and reign as you would. I want to be fueled by the divine. And there's this queen, and she lives far, far, far away. She hears a rumor, a rumor that there's this king who has this divine connection. She's like, I got to check that out. So she travels hundreds or maybe thousands of kilometers to get to him so that she can experience just a taste, a taste of his connection with God. And she says, man, at the judgment, when you stand before God, this woman who, again, she had a rumor. And she came after me. She's going to stand there and say, how could you have missed it? Now, it might be easy for us to look at what's going on with the Pharisees and saying, man, how could they have missed it? Jesus was like right there. But I wonder what the Queen of Sheba, Queen of the South, or the men of Nineveh will say to us. I mean, let's take stock of what we have. I mean, number one, we have the completed revelation of God. His very words is his story. We know the beginning and the end right here. The means by which he tells us about himself. If you've chosen to follow Jesus, you literally have the spirit of God inside of you directing your heart, directing your actions. He's not just standing in front of you, he's inside of you. I mean, that's, that's huge. We've been given the church, a community of people filled with the spirit to walk alongside us as family. We have the completed, revealed gospel. All the things that the Old Testament people were longing for, they were predicting. We know in all of its fulfillment. We have the full benefit of the risen Jesus. And yet how easy is it for us to doubt his love for us when our expectations aren't met. When we finally start to understand the extravagance of the sacrifice of Jesus, the love that he has for us, is a quote from Tim Mackey, the fact that 
The only sign you're going to get is that you hate me and you're going to kill me. And yet I love you and I'm going to lay down my life for you. When that starts to take root in our hearts, it demands something from us. There's a, I don't know how many, any Star Wars nerds? Anyone? Okay, like three people. Okay, so if you're not a Star Wars nerd, I apologize. Uh, Andrew Roper, I'm sad that he's not here because he said he was a Star Wars nerd and he would appreciate this. But uh, there's uh, this, uh, this uh, Star Wars character named Chewbacca. He's like the uh, abominable snowman or like a Yeti in Star Wars form and somehow people can understand his weird growls. Uh, and he's connected to this character called Han Solo, Harrison Ford, you know, like the dashing rogue. Uh, every guy wants to be him. Every girl wants to be with him kind of thing. Um, and so Harrison Ford has this, uh, this partner in crime named Chewbacca. And if you know a little bit of the backstory, you know what's happened is that there's this moment where Harrison Ford's character uh, has actually saved Chewbacca from something. And Chewbacca says, man, this is something that, that means that there has to be some kind of action taken. It demands not just a fickle response, but a deep, deep response. And he swears like a blood oath. And I was all kind of weird. You're, you guys are getting the full picture of like how nerdy I am right now. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but there's this, this response that gets taken. He's like, what you have done for me is so extravagant that the only response that I can give is to dedicate my life to you. And this is exactly when we start to get the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done. We're going to start to get the weight of that. And we're going to start to get that the response that has to be given is heavy. It's significant. Jesus moves on from here to help us understand this better by using this weird little parable. Let me read it for you. He says, When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places, seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean, and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. They go in and live there, and the final condition of that person is worse than the first. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. So Jesus is looking at this people and he's saying, man, you guys have had this experience of me. I've come and I've been preaching good news and I've been healing people. And some of you are like, oh, I, I kind of like this. Like, this is some good stuff. He's like, here, let me, let me give a, a little picture for you. Pretend for, you know, example, there's a person and they're inhabited by a demon. I don't know why Jesus chose this example because it is a little crazy. Maybe it's just because he healed a demon so it's on everyone's mind or cast out a demon. So he says, what happens to that demon? And in, in kind of Jewish folklore, demons like hot, arid places. So it goes floating around. We can't find a place to, to live or to rest. And so it comes back to this person. Now this person, they've experienced Jesus. And so things look nice and tidy in there. Things are a little bit cleaner. But here's the thing. The house is empty. See, they've allowed Jesus to do some work, but they've never actually invited him to come and take residence in them. And she says, well, what's going to happen? Well, that demon, he's going to float around. He's going to find seven more demons, more wicked than himself. They're going to come in and take over. I mean, the number seven, 
That is like the number of completion. That means like this is as full as it's going to get. So when Jesus says seven more demons are coming, he's saying, man, this person, whatever's going on in them, it's complete. The wickedness is taking full effect. They're completely goners. See, this is what's going on with this generation. Not that everyone's demon-possessed, but that they've had this moment where they've experienced me. And some people have liked that, and they said, hey, it's going to be a way that we clean up our lives a little bit. But they never actually accepted Jesus. They never invited him to take up residence in them. And Jesus says, man, you're just leaving yourself open for something worse to come in when you do that. And ultimately, what he's saying is there's no room for neutrality with me. There's no room for sitting on the fence. All of us, if you are here today, have had some experience with Jesus. Maybe it's been a community that's come around you in a difficult time. Maybe it's just people who have gone out of their way to love you. Maybe it's just like a grandma who's like, I'm dragging you here because church is good for you. Whatever it is, you've had something that has brought you to this place, into this community. And that's a really good thing. But a danger can be that you get a little taste of religion. You think, man, I kind of like this. Like, I, I feel like being around good moral people is, you know, is, is a good thing. And yet, you're sitting on the fence about Jesus. And I implore you to understand that the worst thing that can happen is for you to think that is all there is. And it can actually twist your heart towards being a religious person. And Jesus says, if that's the case, you're actually far worse than you were at the beginning. A good analogy of how this plays out is uh, is the analogy of addiction. I've known several people uh, who have dealt with uh, kind of extreme forms of addiction. And uh, as far as I recall, one of the things that you go through in kind of a 12-step process, and you know, if I'm totally wrong about this, come talk to me after, but for the sake of the analogy, don't talk to me at the moment, <laughs> uh, is that they tell you, you can't just step away from something. This thing has had a hold on your life. It's not enough just to walk away from it because it's still going to be pulling on you and pulling on you and pulling on you. And so you got to fill that desire, fill that space with something else. Uh, someone who quits smoking often will do something else so that anytime they have that urge to smoke, there's actually something that they go to instead. And this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, man, when you leave this thing, you actually have to go to me. Because if you don't, in the end, that thing's just going to suck you back in and it's actually going to be worse than when you started. So the danger for us, the danger for the people that Jesus is talking to is that we get a little shallow taste of Jesus. We stick our toes into the proverbial Jesus pool. And that is enough. And Jesus says, man, if, if that's all you got, you're actually just leaving yourself open for something worse. And to bring it back 
to our conversation that we started with about expectations, what's going to happen in that moment when your expectations of Jesus aren't met because you haven't actually learned to love and follow the real Jesus, you're going to be absolutely devastated. There are lots of ways that our hearts look for shallow expressions of Jesus. If your primary relationship with Jesus is based around what he can do for you, maybe you're like, man, Jesus is generous. He's going to get me some wealth. And Jesus is a healer. He's going to bring me health or bring people around me health. Man, Jesus is just a great guy. I mean, look at his community. Like they have good parties. I really like them. I want those people around me. And so it's based around your happiness. Or maybe Jesus is just kind of like that pithy saying you need at the end of your day about how to have your best life now. If that's your relationship with Jesus, might I submit to you that the Jesus that you're following might not be the real one. And when things come that are unexpected, and those Jesuses aren't going to get you through it. Tim Keller, again, to quote, says this. He says, I want to finish off here with uh, a, say, uh, a quote from another Tim. I'm in all about the Tims today. Tim Mackey, and I think it just helps us finish off understanding what's going on here. He says this, Jesus is critiquing the shallow reception of himself that when people allow Jesus to come and have this positive effect on their lives, it's Jesus, and he helps me have a good day but there isn't a wholehearted commitment to actually follow the real Jesus, what you end up doing is following a Jesus of your own making. And Jesus, the real Jesus, guarantees that that shallow Jesus will let you down. Because we're forming a Jesus that is like my little genie, and he solves all my problems, and I pray to them, I pray to him, and all of a sudden, you'll hit this point when it's like Jesus isn't behaving himself. And he's not doing what I thought he would do. And then you will get bitter, you'll be frustrated, and then all the transforming power that the real Jesus could have in your life, you haven't even opened yourself to it because you were never actually following the real Jesus and the end condition is worse than the first. There's going to be times where we hit these rock-bottom moments of disappointment. And you're going to look around and you're going to say, man, Jesus... Where are you? But here's the thing. Jesus gave us a sign that he's with us in those dark moments. He went to the cross. Like us, he suffered. Like us, he faced death. But he didn't have to. He actually chose to do that. And I don't know about you, but I actually don't know a single person that would do that for me. And yet Jesus did. And so when you go through moments that are unexpected, that are dark, that are painful, you know the quality of the God who loves you that he would stop at nothing 
at nothing to pursue you. And when that sinks in, that actually brings about a whole different response. Rather than the anger and embitterment of the Pharisees, it brings hope, love, strength, and healing. 